Good morning. Good morning. If you uh, have your Bible with you, um, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 13? We're going to be in 14, but turn with me if you would for starters to Genesis chapter 13. It's been a few weeks since we were in Genesis together, and so I want to just kind of remind you a little bit of where we were last time we were together in, in the book of Genesis. And so Genesis chapter 13, we'll pick it up at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That doesn't come close to, Father, the deep expression of gratitude for what you've accomplished in the preservation of your Bible. Father, the blood that has been spilt, the lives that have been rubbed out, the pain, the suffering, the tireless efforts, all under your sovereign, marvelous design that we would have a holy, inerrant, inspired word. Lord, I pray that our familiarity with the Bible would not would not come and grow to such a place that we take it lightly as we open it. For, Lord, the lives that have died, lives that have been taken for the preservation of your Bible, Lord, that we have freely and without fear this morning opened. Dear God, please give us a sense of awe at just what we're reading together. And so I thank you for your word, Lord God. I praise your name for it. And I pray for your blessing on your people as we study this passage, this chapter this morning. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. I remember in junior high and high school being somewhat, not caught off guard, but I guess just curious about God's design. I was curious that God, in his sovereign grace, decided to give his son as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, declare us justified by faith in the sacrifice of his son, make us born again anew, place his spirit within us, grant us his inerrant word, grant us the church, and then from the ground up, change us. 
I remember as, as a high schooler, scratched my head a bit just thinking, so wait a minute, he, he perfectly satisfies his justice on my behalf, so I stand before God perfect in Christ, and then he says, now I want to change you progressively. Day by day, little bit by little bit, I want to chip away at your old sinful nature, and I want to prepare and grow and progressively be working in you my character, a Christ-like character. I think it's so interesting when we hear about whether it's a biography, whether it's a brother or sister actually in our presence telling us a biography or reading a biography of some of our favorite historical saints or even the biographies that we have in the Bible where we start with the person at the beginning and then we can track them the rest of their life and you can actually see God has been at work in this individual. God's changing this person. Their their character's different. They are different people. Yes, different people in that they've been born again, but different people in that they are getting more and more formed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we look at chapter 14, guys, I want to look at this concept of the character of Abraham progressing or or changing. Because there's numerous things about his character in this chapter that are extremely fascinating to me. But the interesting part is, just a few little bit ago, we were just looking in Genesis where this exact same man that I want to point God's grace active in his life, this exact same man just lied and said his wife was his sister, so that way she was wrongfully taken by Pharaoh for the sake of safety. Remember, I said said during the time of that message, all that proves is he's human and he messes up, just like you and just like me. So I'm not saying... Abraham is is progressing to the point where there's no mistakes, there's no falling, there's no mess up. No, lots of that. And if you differ with me, just look in the mirror and you'll go, okay, no, that's true. We mess up. Even in the act of God changing us and growing us and changing our character, even in the midst of that, yeah, there's still falls, there's still stumbles. And God in his grace uses those stumbles. And so, I want to remind you, that's why I wanted to go back to Genesis 13, to remind you of the context of what's going on. Remember, Abraham and Lot come, and Abraham and Lot's, their herdsmen are fighting with one another, they're bickering, and it's starting to become difficult. So Abraham tells Lot, all of it's in front of you, I'll tell you what, you pick what you want, and I will receive that which you leave. And you may recall, Roger recalls everything I said, apparently, in, in that message, I pointed out that Abraham, the reason he gave Lot first dibs is because he had complete trust in God's care for him. The Lord will provide. So, Lot, knock yourself out, and I will wait on the Lord. Now we're getting a little bit of a glimpse as far as where these two landed and what's going on in their lives. Now, I'm going to read a lot of names that I am perfectly pronouncing this morning. And so if I ever hear any of you wrongly pronounce these, I'll do nothing. So Genesis 14, and really, guys, verses 1 to 12 is basically the backdrop of what's happening here. And so I'm on purpose not spending a lot of time chasing down every name. Um, I don't have a map to put up here. 
because the main part is not to get lost in some of the uh, lose the forest for the trees kind of a thing, because there's more in this passage I want to chase after. But this war, this battle, is the backdrop of this whole thing. So I want to read it and just walk through it with you, okay? So follow with me. I know the words are strange and the names are hard for us to pronounce, but that's our problem, not God's. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, Chedor Laomer. Now, real quick, just so you know, when Amber and I, um, we have three sons. When we were picking the names for our sons, none of these came up. Uh, Chedor Laomer Mason. <laughs> no, no, that's not going to work. <clears throat> king of Elam and title king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Leomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Leomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in the Ashtaroth Karnaim. The Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazazan Tamar. So here's what I did, because I thought, how am I going to cut through this kind of quickly? So I made team A and B, okay? So the first group is team A, the second group is team B. You have a group of kings being served by another group of kings in their territory. They're paying tribute to them, okay? So for 12 years, this group of kings are paying tribute to this group of kings. <clears throat> 13th year, they rebel. 14th year, they all join together, team A, to go and start attacking and starting war. After we hear about the ravage that they were, they were doing, then we hear about team B coming and going against, in battle against them. I'm just trying to break this down for time's sake, you guys. So Team A is being taken care of money from Team B for 12 years. Team B eventually goes, "Uh uh-uh, and then Team B rebels. So then Team A, on the 14th year, goes and starts many wars together, and then eventually Team A and Team B go to battle against one another. You with me? Okay, okay. So look down at your Bible. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedor Leomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So Team A gathers together. They're going into war against Team... Uh, or Team B is going to battle against Team A. As Team B is fleeing, which tells us Team A is doing a much better job going to war, they begin to fall in these bitumen pits. And it's kind of interesting. If you want to Google it, you can Google bitumen. It's, it's just a, 
kind of a, an asphalt-looking tar substance. And there's these pits, and they were falling into these pits. Now, there's folks who differ. Um, one commentator tried to make a case that they were throwing themselves into the pits to take their own lives to flee death by the sword. Others see it simply as they were fleeing and they fell into these pits. But regardless, I just found it interesting that as Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is writing the Word of God, he gives us this little tidbit, that as they are fleeing away, scared, and losing the battle, even more died in their fleeing. Now, follow with me, because we're going to get to where this is leading up to. Because at this point, you're kind of wondering, so where's Abram? Well, I'll get there. I'll get there. Remember, guys, every good Western starts with the bad guy and what he accomplishes, and then you have the, the, the great scene where it's the introduction of the good guy, right? One of my very favorites, Big Jake, the introduction of John Wayne, and that one of the best intros of the good guy in history. Okay, so, but we're not going to the good guy just yet. Still more bad guys. All right. <clears throat> Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Here we go. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, now this is where the story is kind of reaching where, where we are. Because remember, we just stopped at chapter 13 with Lot and Abram, and you go, okay, so Lot and Abram separate. Abram, trusting God, says, Lot, choose what you want, and Lot chooses Sodom. And then we're told there were great wicked people in Sodom. Now, it's interesting, you guys, that in chapter 13, it said that he went as far as the, like the outskirts of Sodom. Now we're told in chapter 14, he was in Sodom. Some folks want to put a lot of weight on that. You can if you want. All it says to me is that perhaps life was a little easier if he just lived within the city limits. Maybe it was a little bit more lucrative, something along those lines. But regardless, it's interesting because the beginning, he's on the outskirts. Now we're told, no, he's living right there in the middle of the town. So this team A came and ravaged this place, and they took captive Lot and all of his possessions, and we'll see many people, servants most likely, of Lot's uh, crew as well. But one guy escaped. One guy escaped in the middle of this ravaging, and listen to this, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, first time you'll see Hebrew in the Old Testament, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Ammonite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he thought on the matter for 10 days. Right? That's what your Bible says. <laughs> I'm looking to see you. You're awake, right? <clears throat> what did Dan preach on last week? <clears throat> No, what I find so interesting about the message, about this storyline, what's going on here, it says nothing about him deliberating. Why that's fascinating to me is thus far, you guys, in our study, chapters 1 to 13, and now specifically in the life of Abram, we have not seen this aspect of the man. So far, he's been a man that left his country, yes. He has a great deal of people traveling with him, yes. He has wealth, yes, as we're going to see. He has a lot of servants, yes. So 
There's some kind of leadership category to this man. Okay, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. But now we're going military. This is a whole new aspect of Abram that we have not seen yet. And there's no aspect in there where Abram says, well, you know what? I told that nephew of mine, pick whatever you want, and he picked selfishly, so serves him right. None of that. This is important, beloved. There's a foundation here that is so vitally important, and that foundation is that Abram is trusting God and trusting his word, trusting the promise made to him. Abram's not jealous. Abram's not angry. He's not vengeful. He has no angst. Excuse me. Notice that as he is looking at this situation, there's an action taken, and a very quick action taken. And so I want you to look at Abram's act of courage with me. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So and a, a soldier escapes. Bring it, pal. Thanks, Brian. Wow, I was hoping just for water, Brian. Okay. <clears throat> a soldier escapes, comes and tells him, your kinsman has been taken captive. Abram's first response is, then I need to get my men ready. Now, it's interesting, you guys. The passage says that these men were trained. I'm not sure in what per se, but the task they're going to do and the success they have in the task gives me a little glimpse that perhaps there is some type of warrior flavor to these people that are going with him. These trained men. And notice, it's, I love it when the Word of God gives specifics. It gets down to the, to the very nitty-gritty, the specifics of what's really happening in the history of what's happening here. He doesn't just say some men that worked for him or some servants of his, but specifically, he led forth his trained men born in his house. One commentator said, this points to the fact that this was the most loyal bunch that he had who would go with him. Those that they have known him since birth, he's known them since birth. He's been training them since birth. And so coming to them says, let's go get Lot. Let's go rescue Lot. Does he know he will win? No. Does he know that he will walk away victorious? No. But courage, remember this, guys, you should know this. Courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyways. You know who said that? Marion Morrison. Those who aren't his friends know him as John Wayne. So, Did he have fear? Probably. But he responds in courage. His demeanor is courageous. Yes, I'll go. And remember, how easy. Guys, what's the easy street here? What's easy for him? 
Lot, you chose wrongly. You've been taken captive. Serves you right. But there's nothing of that nature because he doesn't find his, his stability in what Lot chose or didn't choose. He finds it in the Lord, and so his initial response is, let's go and let's go retrieve. And courageously, so think of these characteristics, these qualities we're seeing developed in him. Now this man is not only walking in faith, looking for the promised land, but now he's acting in courage. He's also quite a leader because he's got a whole group of people going with him ready to give their lives in war for the sake of a saving lot. There's a development of this man. And notice this too. I thought this was very interesting. It actually gives us just a little hint that this was a man of strategy as well. Verse 13. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And so, not only does he show up at night, but he divides, he conquers, he shuts them down cold, and then he pursues them to run them off even further. And he rescues Lot. I can't imagine Lot's face, this concept, when Abraham shows up with 318 people to show up and rescue him. And to see that, wow, you... Abram, I, you came to rescue, to save me and all that is mine. And notice verse 14, or 16 rather. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram was courageous. Now we'll see in just a moment that all glory is God's, you know, because This is what we do as people at times, isn't it? Where we see a victory like that and we say, wow, Abram is courageous. Abram is a good leader. Abram is is a strategist. This man is wonderful. And we all leave going, man, I wish I was more like Abraham. And we miss the whole point of the passage. Because the point is not Abraham. The point is the God of Abraham. Your God, my God, the God. The point is not the glory and marvelous aspects of Abraham, but what the sovereign king is working into Abraham. God's changing him, you guys. Now, I want to touch on this, and let me give you just kind of a a plan that I have. This week, I am not going to touch Melchizedek. Next week, I want to spend the whole time on Melchizedek. Um, And... My brother John Herleman reminded me that I probably need to spend weeks on Melchizedek. But I'm not going to listen to John. Um, so, uh, but we'll be on Melchizedek next week because I really want to drill down. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I thought about spending some time on Melchizedek and doing it kind of short. But to be honest with you, the more I track down what the Scripture has to say about this particular individual... And the volume of ink that's given to him, I want to really spend some time and study specifically on Melchizedek and then bring that to you next week. So for this time, I'm just going to simply refer to him as the king of Salem and what he does in this, um, in this chapter. Okay, so I'm, I'm not dodging anything. We're going there next week. Just be, be patient with me if you would. Verse 17. 
After his return from the defeat of Chedor Leomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went to meet with him, Abraham, or Abram, at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered our enemies into your hand. Now, I find this interesting because we have a great contrast between the two kings that come to meet Abram. You have the king of Sodom, and we're going to see kind of the nature of this man. His, his nature is far more of a, just a regular pagan king who comes with a desire to barter. Since you won and you got all the spoils, let's decide who gets what. But this Melchizedek individual, this king of peace and righteousness, Melchizedek king of righteousness and and peace, shows up with bread and wine and shows up with a blessing from God that he declares on Abram. And what I love about this, beloved, is that um, Melchizedek does not show up and bless Abram for being victorious. He comes and reminds Abram he were victorious because of God's activity. A God focus rather than a man focus. You know this, I know you know this, but just as a principle to always keep close to your heart, when you hear somebody preaching, teaching, declaring anything in the name of God, listen carefully to see if they are man-focused or God-focused. And that will tell you much about whether you should continue listening. If they glory in man, stop listening. If they recognize, no, 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 it is about God's glory, we are centered on him, listen carefully. And so listen, Melchizedek, what what he says here in this blessing. He blessed Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God Most High. You are favored by God Most High. Well, who is God Most High? What a statement. Possessor of heaven and earth. Not just ruler, possessor, owner. He is the one that has the pink slip for it all. The one true and living God, Abram. The one that has called you, the one who has promised you that you will have a multitude that come from you. The one that has promised this. The one that has promised you to leave your kindred and start looking for the promised land. That one that you have been trusting in, the sovereign king of the universe, the possessor of heaven and earth, declares this about you. Blessed are you, Abram. And then he calls a blessing to the Lord. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, I doubt that Abram in that moment thought, yes, I beat them by my own strength. But just in case any of that may have slipped in, Melchizedek says, you didn't. You were not victorious because your men were well trained. Don't put your trust in in the in the weapons or in the tactics. Put your trust in the king. Put your trust in the Lord who will use you as an instrument to accomplish his marvelous purpose. He has delivered your enemies into your hands. I heard a pastor say one time, 
He said, many men are ruined by a lack of fruitfulness. But far more are ruined by apparent fruitfulness. Success is a hard thing to handle and to live with. If you don't have anything, then you, it's hard to ruin yourself. And I realize lots of folks can still struggle with that. But we get this thought that success is when everything is going well. Actually, you are really, really close to falling as soon as you are successful. Abraham, you need to know, in the midst of this success, God gave that to you. Own it as God's work, not your work. This is not about you. This is not about your power. This is not about your might. This is not about your courage. All those things are being worked in you by God, and he accomplished the task right here. Yes, you you have tasted success, Abram, but you must remember it's actually God's work. It's actually God's power. And now I want to show you in this last paragraph, Abram shows that he does believe that. Abram really does believe that it's not about him. Abram really does believe that it's not about his success. Abraham has one of the best opportunities to be ruined. It's it's amazing to me to hear stories that begin with, when things were really going well, fill in the blank after that. At that moment, when I thought that I had the the world by the tail, I thought that I, I really had things going well. I was so successful. Things were falling into place. And then everything came apart at the seams and it fell apart. As soon as I put my trust in me and my hope in me and the provisions that man could give me and the praise man could give me, as soon as I tasted that, it was all over. And so here's Abram. Okay, think about where he's at, guys. Abram courageously gets his men together. We're going to go rescue Lot. And as they go to rescue Lot, they defeat the enemy. They charge after the enemy, pushing them away. And now you have two kings coming to you, king of Salem and king of Sodom. And they are saying, Abram, here's what we want to do. Now, the king of Salem has made it a very, very apparent and very clear God did this. But remember, we're talking about kind of a contrast between the two kings. Listen to what the other king does. Second part of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So first step is to give a tenth, right? Everything he has, he gives a tenth, most likely to Melchizedek, the priest. But in his mind, ultimately, he's giving that to God. So his first response, Lord, your victory. That's not my victory, your victory. So I want to give back to you. Beloved, don't forget, when we tithe, when we give money, when we do that, we're not doing that because God is just desperate for our help. God's not desperate for your help in any way, shape, or form. We give that as a work of praise, as an honor and glory to his name. We're not... We're not meeting a need that God is sitting there desperately waiting for when we give him a tithe. No, it's an act of worship. We take something of value to us and we say, I want you to see how I value you. So I take that which is value to me and I give that unto you. It's yours anyway, 
right? That's the the silly part is people say, well, I give my 10% to the Lord, and I'm not harping on tithing. I don't do that. It's not a in my, just not here, but at times we can say, I gave my portion to him, and then we forget what we kept back is his. And so, yeah, you gave him, you gave him the tent, but you see this. This is what's so pivotal, beloved. Do you see Abram's response, his first response? Oh, God, back to you. Back to you, your glory, your honor, your majesty, your power. I, I, give, it, I give it all back to you. I, in this giving, I want you to see that. And this is what's so interesting, is if we stop there, we would say, man, that's awesome that his first reaction is, I want to honor you. I want to praise you. I want to give this back to you. And then if he kept the rest for himself and walked away, none of us would probably have much of an issue with that, I wouldn't think. But remember, this, this other king, this king of Sodom, is, is kind of a, a businessman. And he wants to chat a little bit and figure out a good way to divide the spoils between them. So I tell you what, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. It's interesting, you guys, isn't it, that in this Christian life, there are some of those golden opportunities where you will either walk this way and satisfy yourself in disobedience to the Lord or walk this way in obedience to Him and go against your own nature? What's in the natural heart of man when a king says, you take the rest of it? Oh, man, gimme, gimme, gimme. The work of God in the life of Abraham shows itself, in my opinion, there's a lot of things here about him that we've seen in this chapter and in chapters before, you guys, But in this act that he does right here, I think gives us a beautiful window into the soul of this man, what God's accomplishing. Listen to what he says. And what I love about this is that there was pre-thinking on this one. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. Hey, now he's quoting Melchizedek possessor of heaven and earth. Okay, so so you've made kind of an oath. You made a promise. What is that, Abraham? That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. But what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. It's a very interesting act, I think. And it's a very telling act. That his response is, I don't want anything that you'd give to me. Why? It's yours. You went to war. You fought hard. You took your men with you. You were victorious. I'm just saying what's rightfully yours, take it. And his reaction is, I do not want anybody to ever say, I'm rich because the king of Sodom made me rich. Because maybe you forgot, Abram's on a track 
to the promised land on a track to where he has been promised a nation will come from him and his barren wife. Don't forget that little tidbit. I am trusting what God has promised. I'm not letting you thwart the game plan of God. I am a dependent man upon him and not upon you. And just so you know, King, I decided this long before you ever even offered. So thank you, but no thank you. I don't think this is rude. I don't think this is arrogant. I don't think it's him angry at the king. I don't think there's anything of that nature. I think what is here is a man who says, I'm going to wait upon the Lord and receive from his hand. And I will walk in obedience to him, and he will give me what he gives me. So different than Lot at this point in the story, is it? So different. His his heart has not changed, beloved, but God has been progressively changing him more and more. So let me just read this off for you because I thought this was kind of fascinating. Abraham's response to the king's offer is very telling. He has a pre-thought-out response. Abram was not, was not pulled away into the wealth that was given from this man. He recognized that it was God's promise he must wait upon, not man's action. So what characteristics have we seen exhibited in Abram thus far? And you could probably argue this just from this chapter. He showed no grudge towards Lot. He let Lot choose. Lot chose the best, gave him the shaft from man's perspective. He showed great courage in his pursuit to go rescue Lot with no revenge against Lot, but with a desire to rescue him and save him. He showed great wisdom in his plan of how to rescue Lot. He showed great leadership among his men, getting that many servants to say, yes, let's go and lay our lives down and follow him there. He showed great restraint in that he did not take the king's offer. And he showed great dependency on God to provide in the midst of it all. And so I think he resisted the trappings of success that was given to him from the Lord. So I conclude with this. Kind of put it in the concrete for all of us right now. What's it all, what is going on here and what is at the core of this man? He acts very different than a lot of unsaved people. He acts very different than the rest of the world. He's changed dramatically. What is at the core of Abraham? Where is this quality of character coming from? Is it pure moralism? No, this is deeply rooted in the trust in the word, the promises of God. All the qualities that we see exhibited here, the godlike, Christ-like qualities exhibited in Abraham is the work of God in a man. It's God's accomplishment and that man's great trust and faith in God to accomplish all that he has promised he would accomplish. You may face something this week where you trust God's word or you trust the word of man. 
and I say you may, you will. Something will pop up where either you trust even your own sinful inclination at times, or you trust the Word of God. Beloved, I, I can't express it strong enough. God has never lied. God's Word is crystal clear and true, and His character is unmarked. It's perfect. And He has made promises to you, to His people. He's given you His Word. He's declared you justified in Christ. And so I challenge you afresh, take the Word, take God at His Word, walk in obedience to Him. And I ask you if you would, Matthew 4.4, and then I want to pray. Matthew 4.4, the temptation of our Savior But he answered, it is written. You want to read that with me? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word that comes from the mouth. Beloved, that is so where it's at right now. There's your battle line. Father, thank you for your word. I praise you for your